I've been researching this topic for a couple weeks now, and it's been a, a tough one for a couple reasons, mostly because I have been concerned. Well, it's a hot button topic, right? It's one of these ones that you hear it and there's definitely opinions of various degrees about it, but there's kind of a division on it. And uh, it's, it's cancer culture. And But I'm not going to look, I'm not going to just rant about a bunch of the things that have been canceled lately. It's more of a look in like, what's the history of it? How's this been? How have we been kind of molded by this and banning and censorship in general? And, and I'm going to, I've got this, I've got tons of content, like a lot of content and a lot of clips. So it's going to be a long one. Might need to strap in a little bit. Um, hang in there, you know, <laughs> just bear with me. So when I first, um, like the first time I kind of remember talking about council culture was with my aunt. And this was, I want to say it was like October or November. It might have been earlier than that, last year. And we were talking because we talk like every other week, basically. And we were talking about the top, this topic in particular. And she was feeling some ways about it because she had a, a artist, a musician that they really liked. So her church would, had been putting together a new like music hymnal type book, but with more contemporary songs. And apparently an artist that they had selected like, you know, several songs, I think she said four, maybe it was three or five, I don't know, somewhere in that neighborhood, that were um, by this artist who all the sudden there had come out that there'd been some inappropriate type of behavior with a woman. And I don't remember the exact inappropriate behavior, but they, they were going to have to change this book that had already gone through all, like it was ready for printing at this point. Now they got to pull his songs out. And she was a little conflicted because she really liked these songs. They were very meaningful to her and they were very important to her. And worship songs, you know, they touch you and they, they affect you in a way. And she's like, it's hard for me, not, like it's a hard balance to be not okay with his music that had such an effect on me. And, you know, and that's, I think there's a lot of people that feel that way, you know, and this, the, the, the whole concept of cancel culture is kind of, kind of weird because it's relatively new on the scene, but it isn't, you know, so I, I started looking into kind of what the history of cancel culture was. And I, I first started with just the basics of like, what is culture, you know? And so I found an article uh, in uh, Life Science from 2017 by uh, Kim Ann Zimmerman, uh, who's a life science contributor. And in it, she, the def or she, she says, culture is the characteristics and knowledge of a particular group of people encompassing language, religion, cuisine, social habits, music, and arts. The Center for Advancement Research on Language Acquisitions goes a step further, defining culture as shared patterns of behavior and interactions, cognitive constructs, and understanding that are learned by social socialization. Thus, it can be seen as a growth of a group identity fostered by social patterns unique to the group. I definitely thought that was interesting because when you think about cancel culture, it's really kind of like the masses are getting together or not even necessarily the masses. You've got some people that are starting to make noise and it's not necessarily like a large, it's not necessarily the majority of the people. And I think that's kind of the thing that's a little alarming about it in general. But I decided to figure out kind of where this idea of cancel culture came from. And so there is a, um, an article in The Insider from uh, August of 2020 by Rachel E. Greenspan that uh, where uh, she cites that the phrase cancel, uh, cancel culture experienced notable growth in 2016 and 2017, particularly on black Twitter, according to research by Insider and reporter, reporting by Merriam-Webster and Vox. Insider identified fewer than 100 tweets or threads with the phrase cancel culture before 2018. So this is that the the Twitter didn't know about too much about cancel culture too soon too recently. Then there was another a really interesting article that or story I found 
uh, in something called the New York Times uh, Style Magazine. And this uh, magazine, uh, this article was from uh, December of 2020. And it says, it's says the long and tortured history of cancel culture and it was written by a Ligawa Mishan. Sorry if I butchered your name. Um, and it starts right at the beginning of this article and all, just so you know, there's always all of my articles that I reference are linked in the show notes so you can always check those out. said in the early 21st century, a decade into the experiment of public internet, which was introduced in 1991, and with Facebook and Twitter not yet glimmers of da- data on the horizon, a new phrase slipped in to the Chinese slang, Renwa Sasao. But I, 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 I've tried to play it. I have a, I have a link to how, what it sounds like. I, it's really hard to say, but it says literally translates as human flesh search. So that was really interesting. I did look into this... Um, Style Magazine, real quick, it's called the T Magazine, and apparently it's the New York Times Style Magazine. Is It says it's a perfect bound magazine publication in the New York Times newspaper dedicated to fashion, living, beauty, holiday travel, and design coverage. It launched in August of 2004. It was published 13 times per year between 2013 and 2016, and since January 17th has been published 11 times per year. It's distributed with the Sunday edition of the newspaper. And then it kind of goes on more. So this is, I just, I did never heard of this magazine and I was just curious about it. But it looks like an, it looks like they cover interesting cultural type things. So that's, that's cool. But, um, so, the, of course, the next thing I've got to look into is this human flesh search thing. Because that was wild to me. I found, uh, there, there was a Wikipedia page on it. And it, it says, um, it says the thing again, it's like Renwao Sasao, I can't say it, is a Chinese term for the phenomenon of distrib- distributed researching using internet media, namely dedicated websites and internet forums, are in fact platforms that enable the broadcast of requests and action plans concerning human flesh search and, all, and that allow the sharing of online and offline search results. Human flesh flesh search has two eminent characters. First, it involves strong offline elements, including information acquisitions through offline channels and other types of offline activism. Second, it always relies on voluntary crowdsourcing. Web Web users gather together to share information conduct investigations, and perform other actions concerning people or events of common interest. Human flesh flesh search engines, this is mouthful, I'm definitely a tongue twister for me apparently. All right, let's try it again. Human flesh search engines is similar to the concept of doxing. Both human flesh search engine and doxing have generally been stigmatized as being for the purpose of identifying and exposing individuals to public humiliation, sometimes out of vigilantism, national or patriotic sentiments, or to break internet censorship in the public, uh, People's Republic of China. I found this incredibly interesting. I, I put a few links in there. I, I'd never heard of this before, but apparently this has gone back for a while. I, it looks like it's something that kind of started almost immediately for um, the Chinese in their culture as the internet was kind of coming into fruition, you know, but it's just an interesting idea. And so thinking about how what's happened recently, the thing that really kind of obviously triggered me is we've seen lots of things, and but the first thing that kind of triggered me on this particular topic was the Dr. Seuss thing. And almost immediately it became clear that um, this wasn't necessarily cancel culture or censorship, so to speak. And I thought, funny enough, that um, Noah Trevor did a pretty good job of uh, kind of explaining what the issue was. But let's move on, because while Governor Cuomo clearly hasn't adapted to the changing times, one of your favorite authors from childhood is trying to. 
Breaking news, the organization that preserves the legacy of author and illustrator Dr. Seuss says it will stop publishing six titles because of racist imagery. Dr. Seuss Enterprises says the books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. The six books being banned include And to Think, That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, If I Ran the Zoo, Miguel Agat's Pool, On Beyond Zebra, Scrambled Egg Super, and The Cat's Quizzer. There are some examples of racist imagery in those books. For example, there's a character that's described as a Chinese man who eats with sticks. And the depiction of that character has a pointed hat, slanted, slit eyes. In another book, two men said to be from Africa are shown shirtless, shoeless, wearing grass skirts as they carry exotic animals. I know that this thing was blowing up and it was trending all over Twitter, but there's always gonna be people on Twitter telling you that this is the end of civilization because fanning the flames of culture wars is how they get attention. But let's be honest about what's happening here. An organization is making a decision on its own that they don't wanna be associated with their own outdated and offensive imagery. That's not being canceled. That's something that companies and organizations do all the time. Like at some point, Coca-Cola was like, Hey, maybe putting cocaine in our drink is harmful to the public. Maybe we should stop doing that. Nobody called that cancel culture. And despite what everyone tells you, everyone does this all the time. I did think it was interesting that in the little blurb, there was like a secondary report that did use the word banned, which was, you know, part of the problem is a lot of reporters were saying banned. And so, of course, that set people off. I also think that... Um, he made a, you know, relatively decent point that uh, it's not unusual for companies to do this, where they look at their previous information and they see what may or may not be something they want to continue to promote. And this is, I totally support that, to be honest with you. But just for the record, it has happened in the past that Dr. Seuss has been banned. Check this out. In 1989, a school district in California banned the Lorax by Dr. Zeus because it criminalizes the timber industry. So I found it really interesting that that was occurring in California, but I looked it up and he wasn't lying. Uh, I found in a LA Times article from September of 1989 that's not, um, no author is indicated, but this is what they had to say. Beloved children's author, Dr. Seuss, is under attack by logging families in a rural upper northern California town who want, who want his 1971 classic, The Lorax, chopped as a required reading by their kids. A special committee of Layetteville Unified School District met Wednesday to consider a complaint that the book, quote-unquote, criminalizes tree cutting. Quote, it seems as though the battle lines are drawn right down the the main street of Layetteville, end quote, as unincorporated community where both logging interests and environmentalists are, prominent, are prominent. District uh, Superintendent Brian Buckley said. That's a weird quote. Anyways, I ended it weird and then finished. But anyhow, the, it, so there's, it, in 1989, uh, there was already the, battle between the logging industry and the environmentalists happening over a book that I never really thought as like a criminalizing or making loggers look bad. I always just thought it was a message about holding ourselves accountable and thinking about how much we use stuff and being aware of our ecological footprint. So those things happen, you know. I did find another interesting article in a blog. It's a sustainable blog which uh, looks like it started somewhere around 2003, and it hasn't been really being... Uh, it looks like it's not a live blog anymore, and it doesn't attribute who actually wrote this entry, and the person who started it was an English teacher, but uh, who clearly feels passionate about the environment and environmental issues and sustainability, recycling, reduce, all that stuff. And this is what this blog had to say, which I thought was pretty interesting and really... Uh, poignant, actually. Many times, people want to ban books that scare them, or they want to ban books that go against their agenda, or they want to ban books that contradict their religious beliefs. This environmental movement that is going on right now and must continue to go on scares many people. 
goes against many people's agendas, unbelievably goes against some people's religious beliefs. At its very heart, book banning is about muffling free speech. Books are one of free speech's most powerful allies. Once something is published in a book, it is an enormous, or it has an enormous ability to influence. The only way to stop its influence is to get rid of the book. And then it says, what if the Lorax wasn't able or available for me to read to my sons? It was such a, it's a, it's such a gentle introduction for children to taking care of the earth and also a powerful inspiration to adults. When I think about the answer to these what ifs, there was a couple others, but they were talking about other books. To these what ifs, I realized that I need to take a stance against book banning as an environmentalist and as a person who believes in everyone's right to think, say, and write what they believe, even if I disagree with them vehemently. And I thought that was a really very insightful, I, you know, contribution or thought or feedback on the issue that was going on from an environmentalist even. So, you know, that clearly has strong opinions about that particular aspect. You know, there was also, um, I had heard some really interesting and really interesting perspective from the managing editor of uh, Liberty Times. Um, and they were, there was a panel that they were discussing the book To Kill a Mockingbird. This, this one really threw me actually when I read it this morning on Liberty Nation. Uh, I, I was so surprised that this book in particular, but, but any book really, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with the, the, the phrase, at first they burn books, then they burn bodies. Um, and for me, it seems it's almost a, a self-fulfilling circular prophecy that what's happening here, because you have books like To Kill a Mockingbird and the, the numerous others that are being uh, subject to cancel culture now. But these books, they make you think that that's the very purpose of them. But that's also what gets them in the cancel culture crosshairs is because they create, the, they put within people uh, thoughts of ideas and so those ideas blossom so then people start thinking well i can learn things from books i can learn more from reading more books and, and this is it seems to me that cancel culture is about making people a little more stupid uh, a little less open to ideas so by coming back to full circle uh, the people who are wanting to ban books what they're really doing is they want people not to be able to think or to gain ideas from new sources they only want them to be from prescribed sources from specific sources that can be uh, delineated or uh, specifically crafted to put across the message that those who are doing the counseling want you to have as a learner, as a thinker, as a free human being. And there are lots and lots of books historically that have been kind of in those crosshairs even prior to cancel culture. We used to just call it good old fashioned book burning, but now or banning or whatever else. But what I thought was interesting about what he had to say is, is that if you are trying to, we are eliminating messages that people have access to, it, it closes their ability to think about things differently. And, you know, and this, it's not as though um, books are the only thing that are experiencing this, that music has a huge history of this same type of canceling, uh, we used to call it. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, Tipper Gore, she was like all kinds of hated by all of us. We, she was getting ready to get rid of uh, all evil music and she was well hated by the folks that I knew at least. And uh, I'm, I'm not the only one that, re you know, remembers this. Let's uh, take a listen to what Rogan said back in 2018. Let me tell you how much he had to overcome. I was around during the PC days of the 80s. We're in a PC war right now. Seems like it's just the battlefield's just gone crazy. Like there's more yeah. bombs going off PC wise than ever. People are so invested in the idea of controlling behavior and telling people what to do. But back then, yeah. it was happening too for a while. Yeah, with the, with the remember the, the rap um, music. Yeah, Tipper the Gore, Al Gore's wife. They Al Gore's like, wife was trying I'm to make it illegal. Speech, but there's some yeah. things that go too far. Yeah, she was trying to ban rap music. Yeah. Did you catch that uh, it was called PC back then? The he didn't even use the the term cancel culture at all during all of that, and. 
What's really interesting to me when I started looking into this is it wasn't actually rap music that got Tipagor off to the races. So check this out. When the parental advisory label was first introduced, it completely shook the entire music industry with lasting effects that stretched across the United States and across the world. So where did it come from? The year was 1985. Ronald Reagan had been sworn in for a second presidential term, having won on a landslide. The religious right wielded incredible power and constantly feared that the liberal left would somehow invade their wholesome way of life. Enter Mary Tipper Gore, then wife of Senator Al Gore. She bought the soundtrack to Purple Rain by Prince for her 11-year-old daughter, clearly ignorant of Prince and his hugely popular rated R film. As they listened to the album together, Tipper was horrified when she heard the lyrics to the song, Darling Nikki. She then flipped on MTV and saw the music video for Van Halen's song, Hot for Teacher. Tipper Gore had no idea that children across the nation were so easily subjected to what she considered vulgar and graphic material. Later that year, she helped found the Parents Music Resource Center, PMRC, along with three other women, Susan Baker, wife of Treasury Secretary James Baker, Sally Nevius, wife of Washington City Council Chairman John Nevius, and Pam Hauer, wife of realtor Raymond Hauer. Known as the Washington Wives, the women, along with other members, used their connections to start a political battle against musicians and the music industry. They released a list of songs they found particularly objectionable, called The Filthy Fifteen, which included popular songs like Darling Nikki by Prince, We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister, Dress You Up by Madonna, and She Bop by Cyndi Lauper. Okay, so I do know that I hadn't zero idea that she bop was a song about a girl coming to full you know orgasm i had never heard that until i was much much older and i listened to all those songs i do remember when i was a kid though and had to sneak around and listen to prince a little bit here and there because i was pretty convinced my mom would not approve of some of his songs however um it, the thing that was really interesting about like the fallout from all of this was that businesses started to actually have to decide whether they wanted to put this parent advisory level, like explicit, you know, parent warning level type thing on there. So, and uh, it's interesting who was still in the game back then, or I guess not still, but who was in the game back then had no idea this company even existed all the way back in, uh, you know, like the 1980s. These warning labels created major issues for particular artists and for the music industry as a whole. There was an ongoing culture war with music retailers making the decision to carry or not carry explicit albums. Walmart, one of the largest music retailers at the time, refused to carry albums that didn't align with their family-friendly image. The parental advisory notice forced the sale of explicit albums into specialized stores rather than large multinational retailers, limiting market access to explicit music. This became a business decision as well as a cultural decision to either support explicit music or ban it. Many artists were forced to create clean versions with censored lyrics in order to get their albums into stores. For example, in 1990, two live crews album As Nasty As They Wanna Be, an album that was initially deemed illegal for obscenity by a federal district judge, created the alternate version As Clean As They Wanna Be, with censored images on the album cover. A far cry from the artist's original intent. I definitely remember the two live crew thing, and I you know, had no idea, like it didn't occur to me, and even until I really was digging into this, that how much like even just putting like an explicit lyrics sticker on something could cause a whole business shape uh, shift and cultural shift that has definitely come into like current times. But this group of women, they didn't stop with just music. Weird Al Yankovic had a TV show, a news TV show, and he, he reported on this. In political news, Tipper Gore and the PMRC are still hard at work. They've temporarily given up their attack on rock lyrics and instead are concentrating on the commercials shown on MTV. At the present time, they're attempting to ban the Wrigley's chewing gum commercial that says, quote, take a sniff, pull it out. The taste is going to move you when you pop it in your mouth. I'm not sure exactly what those, you know, words or whatever in the advertisement were meant to mean or what, how they were meant to be obscene at that point or whichever. I did think it was interesting, though, that they 
definitely tried to expand their horizons on that level. The interesting thing was it wasn't like this is the first time in history or the last time in history that music has been tried to be banned, songs in particular. There's, I found like a 50 songs that were banned for all kinds of different reasons. The link was kind of wonky, so I didn't put it in the notes because I didn't want to take anybody to something that seemed like it had a lot of pop-ups and grossness to it. But here was a few of the, the uh, takeaways from that that I thought were interesting. Uh, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead from The Wizard of Oz. The song rose up. Uh, the BBC music charts in 2013 bef uh, before being banned by the station. The song was being requested following the death of polarizing former uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, which is kind of interesting because I have done a lot of research on her too. She was definitely a um, div divisive person for sure. Polarizing is another good word. And then there was some that had more real uh, deeper political racial type of concerns like Billie Holiday, one of my favorites ever. Uh, her most popular song was Strange Fruit, which was banned on a poem of the same, or sorry, based on a poem of the same name. The song spoke of lynching and racism faced by African Americans. The song was not well received in America, as many found the genre to be comforting and morbid. Oh, sorry, confronting and morbid. As a result, the song was banned from uh, being played on the radio, despite many supporting the message of the song. And then there were songs that were based, uh, banned based on the, the LGBT community would definitely have some issues with. Queen, one of my also favorite bands. Uh, I Want to Break Free. Uh, this song is where the, the music video for this band song, I Want to Break Free, caused controversy in the U.S. The music video featured the members of the band dressed as all-female characters on a popular English show called Coronation Street. As a result, MTV in America refused to air the song because of uh, the cross-dressing. Really? But what I find found most interesting as I was kind of delving into this is that today, right now, it's not the older folks trying to ban music that the younger folks are listening to. It's a little bit the other way around. Let's check that out. We want to turn now to our GMA cover story. It's a battle of the generations here, setting social media on fire. It all started when some posts on TikTok from Gen Zers called for Eminem to be canceled over his history of controversial lyrics. That's when his biggest fans, millennials, came to his defense, standing up for the rapper in a big way. Zareen Shah has a story. I don't know about you, but I think it's a little weird that we have 30-something-year-olds telling, I guess, 20-something-year-olds, something like that, that to be quiet about shutting down music lyrics. So much so uh, that they, they had a really interesting way of responding. Some pushing to cancel the artist. But many of Eminem's millennial fans are coming to his defense. Listen, little kiddies, let me make this quite clear. This man was around even before you were here. So what, you're all mad because the man was a lyricist while all your rappers are a mumbling gibberish? I mostly put that in there because it was a little fun to have a, a fan do an Eminem-style rap defense. But he is. this isn't the first time he's been in hot water, and he's definitely not the first person who ever has been. Eminem has years of provocative songs and estimated sales of more than 220 million records. ABC entertainment expert Chris Connolly was an MTV BJ during his rise and says Eminem is no stranger to controversy. His lyrics have, have talked about things that many people find to be offensive and, and hateful, and he's been called out for it on a number of occasions, but this has always been a huge part of who he was. And some saying this is just a fresh face to an old fight. Popular music, there have been issues about lyrical content, going back to Elvis Presley in the, in the 50s, going to the Rolling Stones in the 60s and 70s. So this is a battle that's gone on for 40, 50 years now. Well, one could argue that if uh, this started in the 50s, which it probably started before that, but it's been going on for like, uh, you know, 50, 70, almost 70 years. So this is a battle that we've been dealing with for a really long time. But it's not just happening in music and books. There's obviously some stories recently that we've all heard about Pepe Le Pew. And that particular character I wasn't a big fan of when I was a kid, but I didn't particularly have any, like, feelings about it was okay with what he was doing. In fact, 
as a girl, I thought, why does he keep doing that? Just stop. Don't, you know, like, but I don't think that what that was a negative impact on my life. I think that that was a good observation and a good opportunity for me to be comfortable or not comfortable with some behavior. You know, and there's the aforementioned Dr. Seuss, who we also know was at this point is was not technically canceled. They might have done some self-censorship, and we'll definitely be talking about that. And the Muppets, you know, that was all over social media recently with the label that came on that said uh, it, there, there was a label that came in front of it said this programming program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people of cult or people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. And I actually really like that. I'm, I would rather things not be canceled and just taken out. I, I'm totally okay with warnings. I'm totally okay with like, hey, this is something you should think about, you should talk about, we should be discussing, you know. Stories you may not have heard about, there was a, a professor um, at Skidmore College in New York State that uh, was being boycotted. Uh, so it says being boycotted, uh, I don't have his name here, but he was being boycotted for merely attending a pro-police black uh, back the blue rally. He didn't participate in any way. He didn't speak or shout slogans or carry a sign. He says... He just wanted to hear what the demonstrators had to say, but an email circulated at the college saying, tonight, I and other Skidmore students witnessed Professor David Peterson and Andrea Peterson, Peterson at a black, an anti-Black Lives Matter pro protest. We demand the immediate dismissal of both Skidmore staff members for engaging in hateful conduct that threatens black Skidmore students. It turned out uh, later that Andrea Peterson didn't even work at the college. I got this from a Forbes article. This was from September of 2020 and written by um, Evan Gertzman. I, I thought this was interesting. I'm like, how did they witness them? Were they there? I guess it was black students and anti-black. Like, who was there? Was it white students there? What, who witnessed him there? And if he was doing nothing and just listening to what other people had to say, what is wrong with that? Like, that seems completely normal to me. Here's another story I totally backed into because I was looking up cancel culture and I was looking up videos and I circled through lots of hours and lots of videos finding trying to find information that was I thought would be relevant, pertinent, and wasn't just regurgitating the same thing or the, the same talking points that everybody's already heard before. So hopefully I've given you a bunch of fresh information and fresh new perspectives is the goal. But this story is a little different because it was about Chris Harrison, who is the uh, host of The Bachelor, a show I haven't watched in years with any real regularity. And he had been, had an incident and had a discussion with this guy named uh, Michael Eric Dyson, who is uh, actually is a doctor, sorry, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Um, he's a Georgetown University sociological, uh, sociology professor, a New York Times contributor, opinion writer, and a contributing editor of the New Republic and of ESPN's undefeated website. So he's uh, he's out there and about. And I I was really curious because when, when I saw this video, this was actually like a TMZ video where he was doing an interview with the... Uh, the guy from the People's Court, I can't remember what his name is. He runs the TMZ's show. You know who he is. Or if you don't, you then it doesn't matter. But he was uh, talking about this experience of sitting down and talking with Chris. And what I really loved is he gets to this part where he actually addresses uh, cancel culture. And cancel culture is absolute no. Uh, zero tolerance. If you mess up, you're gone. I am not with that kind of fascist refusal to acknowledge that all of us make mistakes. Today you are the canceller, tomorrow you could be the cancelee. So what I really liked is prior to what he said here, he was talking about how he liked the fact that Chris was willing to sit down, interact with people, understand the problem. And here's what happened, because I backed into it, then I went and looked into what happened with Chris Harrison. And for fact, I didn't even recognize Chris Harrison's name when it first came up. 
then I figured out <laughs> who he was and I was like, oh, I do know who that is. All right. But I guess what happened is one of the current bachelorettes is has been called out because there was some uh, posts she liked that were questionable. There was some uh, antebellum theme party that she attended that was questionable. And there I, there was something else. So some uh, person from her youth, I, it seemed like maybe high school or possibly middle school, it wasn't clear, said that she was not nice to them. You know, I mean, I would venture to guess that we could all think of somebody in our lives when we were younger that we were not nice to that could call us out on being an asshole. Because I, I can't think of any of off the, top, off the top of my head, but I probably wasn't nice to some people. I was a kid. Kids are not nice. I covered this before. Anyhow. So Chris had gotten on an interview with... Uh, Gosh, I can't remember what her name was, but she was one of the other, I think it was Rachel something. I feel bad because I can't remember what her name is. But the point is, is that Chris got on and defended this current girl saying basically like, hey, that was 2018. This is 2021. Like life changes. Things happen. What's the problem? Or not what's the problem, but like, like let's hear her out was more his kind of point was like, Let's give her an opportunity to say what she has to say. And um, then he got a lot of backlash. And, you know, the, the, the social media machine took a hold of this story, apparently, which I never saw because I, for whatever reason, didn't come up on my radar. But it, it took a hold. And, uh, you know, and you may be asking yourself right now, like, okay, Sonny. What does book banning and music banning and weird, you know, guys from, like, what does that really have to do with cancel culture? Or how do those two things, because banning's different than cancel culture at this point. Because banning, but it's not really. And that's the thing is, is that what we used to consider book banning and music banning, like Tipper Gore did, is what cancel culture, culture is today. Is where people... Get up and find a place, a platform, a way to voice their dissent, their their disgust, their anger, their frustration, their worry, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, people it, it snowballs. People start to join in with them and get on board. And then, so what's happening now, which I think is really, to be honest with you, kind of the scariest thing that's going on is the self-censorship. And this is happening everywhere around the planet. Check this out. Journalists in Pakistan's capital Islamabad marched towards the heart of the city. They are demanding a right to work free of intimidation and harassment. During the past few years, Pakistani journalists have increasingly complained of intimidation aimed at curbing critical reporting. Some veteran journalists who were incarcerated or flogged during past dictatorships have called the current situation worse. At that time, whatever was happening was visible. There were martial law orders under which newspapers were shut down. Today we have a facade of democracy. The Constitution is intact, but behind the scenes, dark forces are using all means necessary to control journalism. I, this may sound a little crass, but I'm a little nervous because I feel a little like this is happening here too. And let me give you an example of this. We had a local person here in Arizona who quit because she was no longer happy with her job. She even says so. Check this out. Sadly, journalism has changed a lot since I first stepped into a newsroom. And I'll be honest, I don't like the direction it's going. The media needs more balance in coverage and a wider range of viewpoints represented in every newsroom, at every level, and in each position. In the past few years, I haven't felt proud to be a member of the media. I'm sure there are other journalists out there who feel the same way. 
I found myself reading news copy that I didn't believe was fully truthful or only told part of the story. And I began to feel that I was contributing to the fear and division in this country by continuing on in this profession. It's been a serious struggle for me, and I no longer want to do this job anymore. So this gal's name was Carrie Lake. I don't, I never really got into local news here in uh, Phoenix, so I didn't watch her, but I thought what she said was brave and also, you know, poignant because the reflects something that we saw in the clip that I've just played for Pakistan was from 2018. And even after they were supposedly a new, there was supposedly like a new party in charge, they still weren't all that comfortable. Earlier this week, a prominent journalist, Cyril Almeida, was ordered to appear in court to face accusations of treason, a capital offense. The Human Rights Commission of Pakistan said the move would further choke press freedom in Pakistan. While the situation is bad all over the country, certain parts of Pakistan are virtual news black holes. Areas like the rest of Balochistan province or the tribal areas bordering Afghanistan, where international media is not free to travel and local journalists fear for their lives if they cover certain issues. Meanwhile, the new party, PTI, that came to power in a July election, says it will ensure press freedom. Faisal Javed Khan of the ruling party said it had a track record of freeing institutions of political interference. However, some journalists say they're already facing pressure to dial back criticism of the new administration. Aisha Tanzeem, BOA News, Islamabad. I always like terms like dial back. Like, that's very vague. What does that mean? But I hear a report like this and I think about the deplatforming that's happening here, people getting thrown off of social media, people whose videos are being erased from YouTube because they're saying stuff that is questioning the accepted narrative or, you know... just maybe it is inaccurate information who cares like even if it's completely inaccurate information if i think it's completely inaccurate information and i because i'm somebody who looks into stuff i won't pay attention to it it happens on the regular i read news stories all the time where the information seems like the wording is super charged it's using all kinds of flexible, fluid language, like maybes and mights and should and coulds, but doesn't like really actually report the facts. And and I dismiss that type of talking. I don't care who's putting it out. But the, the problem is, is that we are in a place right now in our society where this is becoming a real thing. And then, you know... I'm going to circle back to the music industry and the book industry because this is something that is going on in our lives. So let's hear what happened after all the, you know, parent advisory stuff was going on. With both sides stuck at a stalemate, the fight went to the Senate for an event that was dubbed the Porn Rock Hearings. Numerous witnesses gave testimony, including members of the Washington Wives, senators, doctors, professors, and even three prominent musicians, Frank Zappa, John Denver, and Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister. Critics of the PMRC saw the Senate hearings as promotion of censorship, intended to enforce a moral code on the arts, and the government overstepping into the private sphere to limit the way artists could express themselves. In the end, a compromise was reached. Lyrics were to be printed on the back cover, or albums would bear labels that read explicit lyrics, parental advisory. Most of the recording industry voluntarily agreed to label records that included explicit language and sexual content. But on closer examination, this wasn't so voluntary. This was the RIAA implementing self-regulation in order to avoid the threat of a harsher regulatory system. This allowed the RIAA to keep control in the industry's hands. Self-regulation, self-censoring, it all kind of feels like the same thing in my book. Like, if I get in front of the problem, if I get in front of whatever may come at me, and that's kind of how I feel like we're starting to 
really become an issue. Like Mr. Potato Head, there was there was nobody getting upset about Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. They decided they were just going to become gender neutral and whatever. Weren't they already gender neutral? Like, why did that need an announcement? Same with the Dr. Seuss books, actually, if I'm being honest. Why did that need to be a big announcement? How many of you knew any of the titles? I could play them again, but I'm not going to. That, that they said, because I honestly, none of those books was like one of the books that was like, oh my gosh, I read that so many times to my kids. Or I read that, was read that so many times in my childhood. None of that happened. And it just, it, it irritates me. And it, and it, the other thing that it really does that is also scary is it starts to make writers, uh, uh, publishers, content manufacturers start to self-censor or self-regulate themselves. Here's a perfect example. This is uh, Brent Easton, or sorry, Brent Easton, Ellis. He was, uh, I think, uh, what did he write? He wrote uh, Less Than Zero, which was a big book when I was a kid. Um, or not a book, movie. That was a big movie. But he also, his most popular thing was like American Psycho, I think. Yeah, Less Than Zero in 1985. American Psycho in 1991. I didn't read either of these books, but I did see him, uh, less than the movie Less Than Zero. Pretty sure that had Robert Downey Jr. in it. Let, let's what, hear what he has to say about self censorship censoring yourself as a writer because you're afraid you're going to offend an audience um you know i've said this before you might as well if you're going to do audience testing before you write a novel to see what's going to upset people what's not who's too sensitive for this who's too sensitive for that um who can take this i don't know you might as well really be an advertising you might as well be an advertising man you just it's just the you know it's just, you just got to write what you want to write i mean, do you think that writers today can just write whatever they want to write? Because, I mean, in this country, that's starting to be a thing. But this is not new in other countries. This is a we live in a really weird country compared to most of the world. I mean, one could say progressive, although we are constantly being told we're behind the times on lots of things. But the reality is, when it comes to free speech, there's, you know there's some quite there's some question as to how progressive we are at this point in history but i don't think that we're at a point where like a book festival would be a problem a trip to the ecuche book fair an annual ritual for sonia champa and her daughter khadija they're among the hundreds of thousands of book lovers who turn up for the fair which takes place throughout February. This is such an important event for our children. There are so many books here with so much information about the world. Not just that, you learn new ways of thinking, new ways of understanding. But this year, away from the children's section, there's controversy. The 650 stalls here cover a wide range of topics, including religion, Several authors and publishers have been accused by religious groups of selling books that offend Islam. Organizers have warned that stalls selling offensive material may be shut down. Robin Hassan is one publisher who was told he couldn't attend this year's fair. The ban was reversed after protests by his supporters. But Hassan admits the hostile environment has had an impact on his decision making. I took out 10 pages from a book that I published because I was worried I'd be arrested or banned or worse. This self-censorship is everywhere now. You can't write the book you wanted to anymore. And then we run into this other aspect of like self-regulation. So what, what's the difference between self-censorship and self-regulation? Well, maybe uh, the CEO of Netflix can help us out with that. So do you have a lot of that with the government? Do you, do you have to deal with that? Yeah, I think every country is wrestling um, with some aspects of the Internet, particularly social media, you know, and what those effects are. Um, for curated entertainment, um, it, you know, there's many fewer issues. 
Um, some people do think, oh, the broadcast standard should be applied to YouTube or Netflix or Amazon. Um, but it doesn't really make sense because, again, in broadcast, it's, you know, pushed into everybody's home um, and, uh, you know, there's no way to control it. And on the Internet, you, you know, you click and you choose each show. Uh, so it's, you know, there's, there's much more openness uh, to content that way because uh, the people in their homes are in control of that. So, you know, what the government's done is, is ask the industry to put together a self-regulation code, which everyone has uh, been working on. And I think that will be a very pragmatic middle ground that allows... Uh, will it be a different self-regulation code for every country? For instance, will India have its own self-regulation code? Yeah, every culture has different sensitive points. Uh, so uh, which means you will follow a different code for India than you do elsewhere? You know, we have to comply with all of the, the local laws and local codes, but there's not tremendous variation. You know, we don't have uh, porn and we don't have, I don't know, things that are, you know, that most societies feel like are really bad. I, I don't know what he's talking about because the Cuties movie here, like, lit up. Everybody was totally crazy about it. I did watch it. I have a blast on it if you're interested. I'm not sure what he means by self-regulation and how it doesn't change because it does definitely feel like people want to have a limitation on what they're listening to based on the constant messaging of, like, this is bad. Take it off. Why are we doing this? Take it off. And what's happened as a result of this kind of messaging constantly being blasted at each other at people and folks hearing very aggressive, what you're doing is wrong messaging is that the self-censorship becomes almost innate. And it's happened to me. I'm not even lying. I, I for sure have had multiple times in my life where, it, particularly recently, where I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to say that right now. It's a thought I have in my head, but if I were to say this out loud in this particular forum and where I am right now, and I'm not saying anything crude or disgusting or it, like inappropriate on a sexual level, I'm talking about just expressing an opinion. And if you are in a place where you cannot express an opinion without fear of how people will like literally attack you, because I've had this on social media a lot, that's a problem. And it's not just a problem because like, you know, it feels bad. It's a problem because it's how folks have been using, literally using self-censoring as like a form of manipulation and control. There's, I, I put an article, um, it's, it is from the, uh, Epoch Times. I like to call it the Epic Times. I don't know. It seems like it's a weird thing. This is definitely more conservative. If you haven't heard of it, you probably have, but if you haven't, it's a more conservative, they're like anti-CCP type of, um, outfit that's coming. It, it seems like it's, I, I'm not quite sure if they're out of China or they, they've got reporters in China, it's, I, I'm not a whole, like, I'm not going to vouch for how this is working, but they wrote an article, obviously the link will be in the show notes, that says, in some cases, it appears the censors employ the psychological tricks on purpose, achieving maximum suppression with minimal responsibility. These methods aren't new. In fact, they have long been employed by total totalitarian regimes. The principles of self-censorship is that people, just to be on the safe side, refrain from saying even things that aren't outright banned by some applicable rules. And the very first thing that I think is becoming really prevalent here is vague rules. And that's what they want. That's the true subjugation, and it's going to be chosen by the right people. They say the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, the world's most notorious censor of free speech, has for decades used the method of making its policies intentionally vague. During its 
past political campaigns, for instance, the central leadership would issue a decree that rightists and counter-revolutionaries were to be punished. The next lower rung of party officials wouldn't be told what exactly makes one a rightist or a counter-revolutionary. Oh, you mean like when people say that the patriots here in the United States are extreme alt-rightists and insurrectionists? It's literally their language. And perhaps not even what the punishment should be. So that's the other thing they don't tell you. What are they? What's their crime? We don't know yet. Well, are they guilty? Yes. What's the sentence? Don't know yet. That's the Chinese rule. No official, however, would want to be seen as too lenient either. And that's what's important. So they would carry the risk of being labeled themselves. And as such, each successive level of bureaucracy would intensify its interpretation of the policy leading to ever more extreme results. In some periods, the hysteria went far beyond self-censorship as even refraining from political speech wasn't enough. The quote, During the Cultural Revolution, people would not buy food in canteens if they did not recite a quotation or make a greeting to Mao Zedong when shopping, riding the bus, or even making a phone call. One had to recite one of Mao's quotations, even if it was totally irrelevant. That was the ritual of worship. People were either fanatical or cynical. And this is coming from the Nine Commentaries of the Communist Party. In contemporary China, dissidents are often targeted for, quote, subverting the state or spreading rumors. Can you imagine if we were allowed to charge people for subverting the state and spreading rumors here? No one would be on your television. Well, I don't know if no one would be on our televisions, but only the approved people certainly would be. Like, as long as they were saying the things that weren't being banned or didn't fall under scrutiny from folks, but who doesn't fall under scrutiny? I guess it's just whoever's like, you know, got the loudest voice now. I th This is the problem for me with the entire idea of what's going on is that we're, we're using cancel culture, banning, bullying, to be honest with you. I've said this word before. And at the end of the day, it's it's more like whoever is kind of in control, whoever whoever has the majority opinion that is has the majority voice, and which in this country means who has the most money that they're spending on advertisement. Let's get real. Whoever's spending money on advertisements to the news that you're listening to, to the news stations, the newspapers, they have the loudest voice. Your subscriptions, which I'm guessing if you're like me, you don't pay hardly anything, if anything, isn't going to give you a voice there. It, you're just a, a consumer. The, the people that get to control what messaging is happening is coming from whomever is pumping money into that company. And that's the advertisers. And if you take a quick look at pretty much anything that you're reading, watching, uh, uh, looking up online, whatever ads are being pumped at you, that is who has a vested interest in the information that you're receiving. Just saying. But I think that uh, this uh, there's a guy named Steve Pinkerton that I think can wrap it up pretty good for me. He is uh, the Johnston Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. So let's see what he has to say about how this kind of like group think is going. In order that uh, ideas be brought to light and evaluated, including ideas that we may all believe that may be wrong, it's, it's happened in history many times, uh, it's essential that there be a space in which those ideas can be stated explicitly and uh, evaluated. In fact, one uh, answer to the mystery of why societies often fall under the spell of a collective delusion such as the European witch hunts, which, which uh, tortured to death 150,000 women on, who were suspected of causing ships to sink and crops to fail by casting spells, or pogroms against Jews who were accused of, of uh, killing Christian boys to use their blood to make matzah, not to mention the horrors of Stalinist uh, Soviet Union or uh, Hitler's Germany. Uh, you look at them retrospectively and you say, how could everyone have been so mad? On top of being evil, these ideas seem patently ludicrous. How can you have a collective delusion overtaking an entire society? 
And it looks like one of the answers is if dissenters are punished and can anticipate they're going to be punished, then you might have a situation where no one actually believes something, but everyone believes that everyone else believes it. And therefore, no one is willing to be the little boy that says the emperor uh, is naked. Uh, and this pluralistic ignorance, as it's sometimes called, uh, is easily implemented when you have the, uh, the uh, punishing or censoring of unpopular views. So if you're punishing and censoring unpopular views, then it makes it easier for everybody to just be afraid to say that the emperor doesn't have clothes on. It was basically what I took away from that. Maybe you took something else away from that. But that's kind of how I feel right now. Like, if I have a view that I know is unpopular, or if I had an opinion that I know is not going to be well-received, I definitely, we definitely live in a time where that is more difficult to actually talk about. And as we continue to erase, ban, cancel, take away, take down, refuse to allow, have a platform, the less non-popular ideas get out there. This is the question that I have for y'all. If we eliminate the story of what was and create an environment where people are worried about speaking their minds and music, books, attending protests, or strip journalists of their ability to present honest news, how can we work together to make the best of what will be for our all of our future? I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. I know this went long. I know this one is going to be, you know, one you might have to bite through in small segments. So I hope you stayed with me. I hope you hung in there. I'd love to hear any response, feedback, questions. Show me some other information. I, I'm always open to hear what you have to say. Y'all take it easy now. We'll talk to you soon. Government of the people, for the people, by the people. speech the first amendment protects material presumptively we don't talk about uh, harassing and sexually brutalizing I'm, I'm women in my music man we don't do that in my music man i'm tired of you saying that we've got white dollar people trying to grab our side saying we're too nasty and we're too live corrupted politicians playing games bringing us down to boost their fame they must be joking thinking we were poor but they're like flies moving the wall we stand tall from beginning to end with help from fans and all our friends freedom of speech will never die for us to have our ancestors died don't keep thinking that we will quit we'll always stand and never sit we're too live too black too strong doing the right thing and not the wrong so listen up y'all to what we say we won't be banned in the usa Cause on election day, we'll see who's banned in the USA.
the show in Hollywood, those were 21 and older people. They had the police out there carding the people coming in the club, and they still arrested us for performing in the front of adults. What is this? Is this not America? This is not China. This is not Russia. This is not the place where they brought down the wall. This is America. We have the right to say what we want to say. We have the right to do what we want to do. And what I do in my house, you might not do in your house. So what I do in my house is my business. And the simple fact of it all is that we are bonded by the First Amendment. We have the freedom of expression. We have the freedom of choice. And you, Chinese, black, green, purple, Jew, you have the right to listen to whoever you want to and even the two live crew, two live crew, two live crew. So all you right-wingers, left-wingers, bigots, Communists, there is a place for you in this world because this is the land of the free, the home of the brave, and two live is what we are.